Okay, so we're we're good to get started. We are we're on the hour mark. Thanks a lot, guys, for joining. And, and for everyone that's kind of like tuning in, we're going to be talking about Kartas uh, highly scalable information system. It's called Alt Z, and it is based on the the Google Zanzibar paper. But before we kind of like dive into the, the technical details, I would like to ask, what does Carta uh, do for, for anyone in the audience that might not know? And what do you guys do specifically at Carta? Yeah, so Carta um, is a private fintech company and uh, we really aim to provide liquidity in the private sector. Um, so, you know, before Carta, you used to have to work at a company for maybe 10 years with the hope of someday going public. Um, but we have several products um, like tender offers where if your company is uh, on Carta, you have your cap table on Carta, you can actually sell shares through a tender offer to investors. So you can get liquidity before the company actually goes public. Um, and we have several other products as well. Uh, we uh, focus primarily on cap table management software initially and uh, in valuations for companies, but we're expanding to other markets um, like employee compensation data, fund administration for VCs and investors, uh, as well as capital markets. Okay, and, so, so it sorry. seems, again, like without getting into the weeds, including myself, I'm, I'm not a financial expert, you, you handle a lot of information about private companies, uh, equity structure, who has equity, who has specific rights, grants. So a lot of fine, important financial data, kind of like to, to summarize and simplify. Does that make sense? Yes, exactly. Good. And, and, and what do you and, and Andy do at Carta? I imagine it's, it's a large company. Uh, what team are you on and what does your team do? Yeah, so our overall organization is platform infrastructure. Um, so we, we're actually on the IAM team, which is identity access management, as I'm sure you, you know. Um, so we focus primarily on authentication and authorization, and we also uh, handle user data. Um, on the side, we kind of help out with some other stuff like gRPC frameworks, logging occasionally, and uh, just like general infrastructure. Um, but yeah, our primarily, our primi excuse me, my primary focus is on uh, IAM. Good. So this, this is kind of like one of the topics that, that keeps kind of like recurring in, in the in the Twitter spaces show, let's say, we, we talk a lot with uh, platform teams, or at least one of the platform teams at, at different companies, because what we're looking at is how they build authorization for other internal teams inside the, the company. Now, let's kind of like start getting into the meat here. Um, again, we talked about the team working on a platform, identity and access management, but let's talk about authorization. Quickly, kind of like describe what you see as authorization at Carta, and, and why is authorization and why are permissions important at a company like Carta? Yeah, sure. So um, a lot of people confuse authentication with authorization. Um, so authentication is basically validating the user. So given some user credentials, is is this uh, correspond to a user, and uh, get get user data. But authorization is more. Um, does the user have access to something in the system? Um, so, you know, inherently, because Carta deals with a lot of sensitive financial information, be very bad for business if we leak any of that information to uh, competitors or allow unauthorized users to transfer data, um, you know, between different companies. So we need to make sure that um, a user is 
properly authorized to do what they should be able to do within the system. Um, and also, you know, with the financial data, you also have to be compliant. Um, so it's important that we're able to audit who was given that access at a certain time. And even if the permissions, you know, have changed since then, what were those permissions at this specific time? Uh, so, yeah, there's a lot of requirements there, but um, we were able to, you know, fulfill all of those with Aussie. Okay, so it seems that like kind of the, there are a couple of aspects there. One of them is authorization, what the user can do. And then there is another one that is more around like the auditing, what happened in the past. Oh, just, uh, I think, uh, I don't, can you mute while I'm chatting because I'm hearing a bit of an echo, not sure if you're, okay, yeah, there we go, thank you. So there's kind of like authorization and then there's auditing, what happened in the past. Uh, can, can we go into like maybe one specific use case of like, what you authorize, so for example, this user should be able to do this, shouldn't be able to do this, and the same thing for um, auditing. What what use cases for in terms of compliance do you need to be able to show auditors? Yeah, for sure. So um, Carta is a, a network of different user types, uh, and what I mean by that is you have companies and you have employees, but there's also a, a, a bunch of different users that are on our platform in addition to those. So a company has a bunch of uh, employees. Uh, but then you also have VCs, which are on the platform, which invest in companies. And then you have uh, people called uh, VCs or venture capitalists. Then you have uh, people called LPs, which are limited partners. And they provide capitals for venture capitalists to invest in companies. And so, uh, you know, uh, LP might be uh, invested in multiple VCs. And then VCs might be invested in multiple companies. And an employee might change the company that they work at. So you can see how it's a network or a graph of users. Um, and so through each of these edges, there are different ways that somebody could be authorized to view like cap table data, for instance, as part of a company. Uh, and to make things even more complicated, some VCs might have funds that invest in companies, but they might also have funds that uh, are composed of other funds which invest in companies. So it's like this net nested relationship of a fund to company mapping. Um, so through, yeah, like I said, through these different edges, you can have access to different things like security, support cap tables or documents. Um, and so our permission system needs to handle all of those cases. Um, and we need to be able to identify who was able to access that data. And also we need to give companies access or the ability to limit the access um, that the VC or the LP has on their company's cap table as well. Okay, okay, that, that makes sense. So essentially, if, if, I, if I work at the, at the venture capitalist or, or at a limited partner, for example, at a limited partner, I should be able to see how my funds are, from the VC are allocated, but an employee at the company should not be able to see that view and so on. That, that makes exactly. a lot of sense. Um, now, before you, you build OZ, you, you had a working implementation of authorization. What were the issues that you were seeing with that implementation? Our initial uh, implementation was very focused on our cap table business, and it consisted of a data model that we created using um, uh, Django models and Postgres. And so it was very, it was very tailored to that specific product. Um, but at, over time, uh, we've acquired more you know, employees, we've built many more products, and uh, the company's been growing really quickly. So um, we've had to update that model and um, add more features. 
over time, it became overloaded with uh, lots of different things. And it works. Um, you know, it's just, it's pretty hard to update because there's a lot of testing in, involved. And sometimes we need to make big changes in order for it to, to handle, you know, the, the new products. Um, so we were really looking for something that was more generic and easier to update. And so as we expand into new markets, build new products, we can just push permissions into a new system and not have to worry about building a bespoke uh, data model specifically for that product. Especially if we can level. Oh, sorry. Can you can you repeat that? I accidentally unmuted muted everyone while I unmuted myself. Uh, yeah, sure. Um, uh, what did you miss? So the, the last part. Is, uh, so it's essentially about enabling the business to build a new products without changing everything. So like a, a more generic model. And then you said, especially when. Oh yeah, especially when we're building new products and we don't want uh, a team to build bespoke business or bespoke uh, permissions models. Okay, yeah, that that makes sense. So the, one of the things that's kind of like happening is that like product proliferation, right? You have different, not necessarily permission models because some of the entities are, are related, but different authorization criteria for different products. And, and there's kind of like this notion of business agility and making sure that as new products come in, you can quickly onboard them, but also retain a lot of the benefits of, of what you built before. Does that make sense? Exactly. Good. And so what, what were kind of like, again, we talked about the, the goals with, with that implementation, but like what were, how did you pick those goals, right? Because it's very easy, like when we had started at least as, as engineers to say, hey, yeah, we're going to build for scale and microservices and it's going to be decoupled and flexible. But like from, from a business perspective, what, were, what was the pain of, of having to go through these painful upgrades, of, of having to go through kind of like the lots of testing to make changes? What were the business outcomes of all of those issues? At Carta, we're all about creating leverage. And, you know, lev so leverage is different in efficiency, where efficiency is um, like if I put in the same amount of work, can I get the output easier versus leverage is if I put in less work, can I create more output? Um, and so we want to create leverage so that teams don't have to put in uh, more work in order to get something done. We want to make it less work. We want to utilize the same products for multiple teams. So really to us, we, we wanted to build something at the infrastructural level that people could use, not have to worry about and just have it work, right? And we didn't want them to have to create these like bespoke data models specifically for their products. So we're really looking some, for something that was super generic that we could use. And uh, when we started, we actually had um, a couple businesses that hadn't been spun up yet. And we had use cases for their permissions. And so we took those use cases and we tried to, we looked at different options for uh, various permission systems and use those use cases to figure out if that system would work even before we built it. Okay, and, and what options, that's kind of like good segue into my, my at least plan next question, which is like, what, what options did you see out there? Uh, I recently, uh, so I, I'm, I've been working on authorization for, for almost kind of like a year just dedicated to that and, and been looking at the market recently, the presentation about it. And that's kind of like a proliferation of open source tools and like some vendors, some of them are SaaS vendors, some of them are like more like maybe infrastructure-ish vendors. Uh, what did you see out there? 
Uh, yeah. So when we looked, it was uh, mid 2019. So it might have changed since then. I honestly haven't looked since we started building. Um, but at the time, there was OPA, uh, Open Policy Agent. And that looked pretty cool, but um, it kind of solved a different problem. So OPA is like the system that you run on top of your, not on top of your service, but um, separate from your service, which handles authorization. It basically executes policies and the data for those policies could be stored on the system that runs OPA, or it could reach out to an external system to get data as well. Um, but basically it would separate the authorization layer from the service itself which um, solves a different use case that we we're trying to solve. We we're just trying to make something that was flexible and faster than what we had. Um, and so we decided not to go that route because it didn't fix the data problem. Um, we also looked into uh, potentially rebuilding our model, um, but the model had been rebuilt a few times and it just really wasn't working. working for us. Uh, each time we rebuilt it, it took a lot of effort, a lot of test. didn't really want to go down that route because we figured there'd probably be stuff down the line that we hadn't um, you know, thought of and things would probably have to change again. Um, so we decided not to go that route. What we did in the short term, um, because at the same time, we were also decomposing our, we had a monolith, we decomposed into microservices. Um, we decided to have a short-term solution where we created um, distributed uh, tokens with permissions. Um, but there were some power users that had, uh, you know, lots of permissions. Like say you're a, um, a LP that has access to lots of funds, you could have lots of permissions for all the companies that exist in all those funds. So tokens could become bloated, and we we thought that it probably wouldn't be a good idea to use that because we wouldn't want our power users to experience um, you know slower response times. Uh, and then we thought about also going a role based uh, approach as well, but we just couldn't get the fine grained uh, permissions out of that because it was it's just too generic. We couldn't like we wanted to build products that um, we could create different abstractions for. Uh, where you could have like specific access to a single entity, uh, like a document or a security. And the old system was more focused on um, role-based. So, so there was a, a collection of a bunch of different um, permissions that existed under that role, and it was hard to create new roles. So if we went the, the role-based route, we felt like we would further limit ourselves into these all-encompassing roles, and it would be harder to build finer-grained uh, controls on that data yeah that, that that makes sense and, and again, that's kind of like one of the things that we we've been both thinking about as we build kind of our sansibar as a service but at the same time talking to both prospects and, and people here at the at the twitter space um we, you mentioned a couple of interesting concepts that again maybe not everyone is familiar with so i'd like to kind of like double click on those one of them is like the the notion of like finer grained permissions and like access to a single entity. So how do you think of like role-based access control in comparison to that fine grained single entity access? Yeah, so role-based is, um, it's more like a, a, I guess it's a role, but it's, it's not a single permission. So you can think of it as like, um, are you a company viewer? Are you a company admin? Are you a document editor? They, 
it's just a role that might apply to some companies that you have access to, but it's not, it doesn't um, give you fine grained permissions on specific entities that belong to that company. Um, so, and the other thing too about that is when you have um, role-based uh, checks within your logic of your code, it's a lot harder. It Basically the logic becomes more complicated because you also have to query a bunch of other data to figure out what access the user has. Um, so for instance, if I wanted to create a new group of documents and give a user access to those documents, I'd probably have to create a separate data model where my document viewer uh, role would first give me access to that. And then I have to query a separate data source to figure out if the user belongs to a certain group of documents. Um, with the fine-grained permissions, you can basically apply permissions to single entities, like a single document. So if I want to give you access to a, a specific document, I can do that. I don't have to give you access to a role. Um, but I can also create abstractions that group a bunch of uh, single uh, fine-grained permissions together. So uh, maybe I can create a group for staff documents where all the users that are a staff user of a specific organization can see all the staff documents. Uh, so yeah, we just basically wanted something that was more flexible, and so we didn't have to roll all of our own custom app logic to uh, fire off those permission checks. Yeah, uh, Andy, I don't know if you had anything else to add about that too. Uh, yeah, just regarding role-based. Um, roles are great when they're predefined and you know exactly what permissions are set on them, um, but there are use cases where you know a company may not want the eight pre-canned roles, but create their own roles that have like their own custom permissions on it. Um, once you go down that, like, if it's just purely role-based, you will get sort of a, a role explosion where you will have literally thousands of roles in your system. And we really wanted to avoid that. Um, we wanted to give our users the ability to create essentially custom roles, but not um, create like just a role like, um, mess in our system. And I, I don't know if I explained that right, but essentially if you just have a role-based system and you need to grant permissions to very specific entities, um, roles grow out of control very rapidly. Right, yeah, th this is kind of like, because this is kind of like this finer grain notion is, is a, I would say, I, I wouldn't say newer term, or, although you can argue that also like attribute-based access control with policies does allow this um, kind of, uh, finer grained access, there's a difference between a difference between I can access a document because of like specific attributes that the document that I might have versus I can access a document because someone specifically granted me access to that specific document. And it's not about me and it's not about the document. It's about like that kind of like sharing that connection, that access. Uh, and my other thought there is the, the notion of the role doesn't necessarily disappear, right? Like you could have a role for a particular document, I'm going to make something up. You could be a writer or an editor of the document, and that just means a number of permissions on the document. So as an editor, you can write the document, you can view the document, you can share the document. All of those are could still be roles and permissions, but you don't have to create the editor for document one, editor for document two, editor for document 1000 role, which kind of like goes back to that role explosion that you were talking about, Andy. Yeah, exactly. Good. So again, we, we oh sorry, go ahead. No, no, I'm good. Good. So the what we talked about again, kind of like the, these alternatives. Um, 
when when we go kind of like uh, another thing that you, you mentioned was like the, the notion of like bundling things in the token. Uh, before we kind of like dive into into Zanzibar and how you kind of like found it and thought, hey, this is it. Can can we talk about that token alternative? Uh, again, what's a token? What do you put in it? How do you eat a token? Yeah, so the token was more of an experiment than anything. Um, we basically, so we wanted to prevent the problem of um, services overriding permissions uh, in a distributed environment and, and, and not propagating that data to uh, other services properly. Um, so basically like a, a consistency problem. Uh, so we created uh, what we called a, well, it's a JOT token, uh, if you're familiar with that, but um, we created a JOT token that embedded all of the permissions that a user had. And so usually when you have permissions tokens like this, you'll scope them to different entities. So like if, you're, if you belong to two corporations, maybe you'd have a different scope per corporation. The problem though is because we have this really complex relation between uh, like all the user types in the graph, you could potentially see um, data like in different views on the app for um, like multiple companies. So we couldn't really split the token up by scopes. Uh, and, and the way the old system legacy system worked, I don't want to get into it too much, but the way the old legacy system worked, you kind of had to look up like all of the permissions within a specific fund in order to get like to show the fund. And so we had we ended up having to build these huge tokens uh, with like pretty much all the permissions so that we could pass them to the downstream services or sorry, upstream services in the transaction. Um, and so, yeah, it just didn't really work. Um, we never went to production with it. Uh, we were just experimenting with it, but yeah, I, I mean, I think for any sort of like, um, super complicated use case, like for us, it just didn't really work. Um, Andy, I don't know if you had anything else to add about that, but. Uh, no, I, I think you got most of it. Um, just to reiterate, like, um, yeah, it was an experiment. And I, I think the problem came with our power users. Um, so uh, same example, Aaron game with LPs, like you have some LPs that had like access to maybe hundreds of funds and to generate that jot just, it was very time consuming. And we did not want to put that latency on to that power user. So that's sort of what shied us away from using this jot. Yes, that, that makes sense. And I'm just kind of like for, for anyone out there that's not familiar, so a jot, a JSON web token is uh, a JSON embedded or like kind of like a, a JSON embedded credential. So it's an assertion where you take JSON, you encode it, you sign it, and then basically you can verify that the signature hasn't changed based on like the key that was used to sign the, the token. And because of the signature, if you trust the entity that issued the token or that signed it, you can also say, hey, I'm going to trust the contents of that token. So you can decode the JSON and you can check the attributes. And we actually did a very good episode on that with uh, Vittorio Vertocci, he works at Outsido where we talked about kind of like the, the profile for access tokens and, and JSON web tokens for uh, Auth2, which again, I recommend to anyone that's kind of like interested in that topic. Um, so again, we, we talked about tokens, we talked about fine grain. Let's, let's dig into uh, Zanzibar, right? The blog post is about, hey, 
at Carta, we built a custom implementation of Zanzibar. Uh, one of the jokes I have is like uh, that Zanzibar, it's so hot right now, quote from Sulam, that everyone's building a, a Zanzibar implementation. What made you pick Zanzibar? It was kind of lucky that we found um, the white paper because like pretty much exactly at the time that we were looking into building a new system, the Zanzibar white paper was released. I believe it was like mid-2019, um, if I remember correctly. But anyways, yeah, I think it was uh, July or August 2019, yeah. Yeah, and so that was like exactly when we were building it. And so it kind of fell into our laps. Um, and it, so in case, if anybody doesn't know, uh, Zanzibar is Google's uh, highly scalable permission system. I believe they use it for some of their big name products like Drive and um, Gmail. And there's a few other that I'm forgetting right now. But um, yeah, so they say so they released this white paper and they use it to define ACLs or access control lists in order to create permissions. Uh, but the cool thing about it is um, there, there's two things. One is that you can create nested groups of permissions or abstractions of, of permissions, kind of like roles. Um, but they can be nested, meaning you can compose them of other things. Uh, and uh, so it's similar to like Unix file permissions where, you know, you can give access to a specific entity. But again, uh, you can create groups on top of that that bundle these things together. Uh, and then they also have a index system which makes lookups on those permissions extremely quickly. It doesn't matter how many nested groups that you have. Uh, the lookup time is basically constant. Um, so that to us was very impressive, coupled with the fact that it was proven to work at scale. It just seemed like the right um, thing to pursue. Uh, so I mentioned earlier that we had a list of use cases that we were given um, from some products that we were planning on building. So before we even started uh, building the system, we just looked at uh, the concept of a relation tuple, which exists in the Zanzibar paper. And you use relation tuples to build these uh, access control lists. And we, we modeled out some permissions to figure out if the system would actually work for us and if we could potentially you know, update it if things change and, and things like that. And we found that for every use case that we were given, we were able to create a model that would work um, in, in this system. Uh, so from there, we decided to go forward with Zanzibar. That's, that's great. That, and it, it reminds me a lot of kind of like my experience uh, trying to kind of like validate Zanzibar. So I, I'm trying to kind of like think of it more from a SaaS perspective. Is this something that companies would use? In your case, it's kind of like the same, right? But, but it's an internal SaaS. And, and the fact that you can, of going out there and getting real use cases and trying to model them and saying, hey, does this work? Does this work? It's kind of like the, the test-driven development uh, for, for kind of like product uh, acceptance criteria, so to speak. Oh, definitely. And I think people start, like, especially engineers, we start building stuff way too early. And I think we lose a lot of time by doing that because a lot of things you can test by before you even build anything. And you gain a lot of valuable um, you know, insight into how to build the product. Uh, actually, I have a, a blog post about Aussie. I talk about this a little bit. But um, yeah, it's, I think it's really, really a great thing to do. Good. So again, we we covered a bit on, on Zanzibar, and I'm I'm really hoping that again that we'll do an episode on the just Zanzibar at Google once. But you guys aren't Google, or at least not yet. Um, I want to learn about like your architecture, right? Like how does this system work? So let, let's walk through kind of like a couple of use cases. One of them is 
what happens when you need to like perform an action with the API or like render a web page and how are permissions checked? And then kind of like the other part of that, how does the system store things like kind of like a high level view for, for anyone that kind of like is listening and try to create a mental picture of what's going on? Yeah, I, so I, I released a blog post um, actually on Friday about um, Aussie's system architecture. I go way more in depth in that blog post, so I recommend you check it out. It's on um, medium slash building hyphen Carta. Yeah, and, and uh, we'll link to it in the in the YouTube notes as well. Awesome. Yeah, so I recommend reading that, but I can give you a high-level overview. Um, so the system is written in Python and Postgres, and we use Postgres as the database. We chose that because we had tooling already built for Python and Postgres. We might update to some other data store at some point or rewrite it in a different language if we're seeing problems. But so far, it's been, you know, our metrics have been really amazing. So I think for now, we'll just keep it as is. Um, but yeah, so we have a service, a gRPC service that's written in Python, um, stores data in Postgres. And then we have a, um, we have a Redis instance, which controls our workers. And our workers are used to process updates and push them into the index. So a consumer will hit Auth Z and push a relation tuple that I mentioned earlier. A relation tuple is kind of like an entry in an ACL access control list. Uh, it defines a actor that has access to an object um, through uh, what we call the relation. And so they'll, they'll push a permission, the permission update into Auth Z. Auth Z will store that data in a um, append-only uh, commit history. And so it could be an, uh, an add or remove if you want to change a, a permission. And then we fire off a index update event, which um, basically traverses the graph and um, pre-computes paths in the graph uh, for the permissions. So like, for instance, there might be a couple nested groups between me and a permission. Say I'm a admin of a group. And the, if you're an admin of a group, you can also you're also the editor of um, a group of documents. And maybe if you're editor of a group of documents, you can um, edit document number one or something like that. So there, you can see that there's through these groups, there's a, a path in the graph. So when you check access in Auth Z, um, you provide input, uh, can user one view document seven. And through those groups, um, you're given access to a specific entity. And so to, to do that lookup on a commit history, um, it's uh, very time consuming because you would have to traverse the graph. Um, you know, so it's expensive. So what, what Zanzibar does and what we do as well is we build a secondary index which stores pre-computed paths. Uh, and not, not the full pre-computed path, but smaller subsets of the pre-computed path. And those are built through our, uh, through our Redis workers. Um, so what, yeah, when the change process happens, uh, it fires off an event. A uh, worker will update the index, and then um, that's all happens async. So as soon as somebody adds a permission to Auth Z, we return, and then the uh, index updates are processed offline. Then a consumer could come in and check access. Um, if the index update has been updated in our secondary store, um, then we query that and return the permission to the user. Um, so it's it's probably too much to like kind of go over in this uh, format, but I definitely recommend reading that um, article about how it works. I go uh, very in depth about all of this. 
Great. So that's that's awesome, and and thanks for kind of like diving into that. I'll try to kind of like add a bit, a couple of notes, and having read the blog post and, and having worked on, on on a system like this, uh, maybe to to kind of like help color some of these things, and again, hoping that you Andy and the and Aaron kind of like add anything that I might not have gotten right. So. Like the, the way again, a Sansevier-like system works is you store a, what what's called as a relationship tuple, and that defines a relationship that an actor uh, or a user, for example, has to an object. For example, that can be user Damian is a writer. That's a relation of document authorization, and that's kind of like a fact in the system. It's stored like with those three parameters, right? The actor, the relation, and, and the object. Now, what I understand is you send uh, an RPC right with these three parameters. Python server takes that and stores that into a Postgres database. Uh, is that, is that a Postgres database that you run? Are you running any like cloud provider flavor like Aurora? How does that work? Um, yeah, so we just have a, we have a lot of tooling built for, for Postgres. Um, so we, we use AWS. We have all our tooling there. We use RDS actually. Um, so it's just a, an instance that was provisioned by our infrastructure team. Okay, makes sense. And, and is that kind of like a, a single region cluster? How many ACs does that run? Or is that a multi-region cluster? Um, I don't know if I can go into it too much, but... That's, that's I mean, okay. Let's, let's, we, yeah. we can skip over that. That's good. Uh, so again, we, we stored the data in Postgres, and then we, we, we stored this data using kind of like an append-only format. So it's either an add of the relation tuple, or a delete of the relation tuple. That, that has the data there. Now, one of the things that, that you notice, and it's also in the paper, is that it, it is possible because of the flexibility of the system, because of the composability of the system, to have like re really nested groups. So like someone might have a particular relation to an object because, as we said earlier, it's a limited partner that has a bunch of funds, and those funds might actually be like composite funds that have access to other funds. So, that level of testing and access means that in order to guarantee very low latency, and, and we can get into why that's important, you need to kind of like unnest and, and flatten this whole structure. And that's why you end up building that secondary index with the workers. Does, does that make sense? Exactly. Okay. And so like, I think that the final thing there is, it seems that this index is kind of like eventually consistent with the, the Postgres database. Uh, what were the trade-offs that you considered as you made that decision of, of keeping that system eventually consistent? Yeah, so I mean, it just makes the response times a little bit better if you're adding permissions. Um, since it might take a while to um, pre-compute the paths, we don't want to make the consumer wait uh, for those updates to happen. We just want it to be fire and forget. So you fire an update, we say, okay, we'll eventually be consistent. Here's a token that you can use to query our system later. Zanzibar calls this the Zuki. Um, and you can continue doing whatever you're doing. But when you check the permission, pass that, um, that uh, token in order to verify that your updates have been made to the permissions graph. And so you don't have to pass that uh, token. But um, if you don't, it's just like it could be the most recent version of the index. It's not guaranteed that your permission will be in there. Um, so generally, we recommend that consumers pass this token. Yeah, that, that makes sense. So it's basically like you, you're giving back this, again, this token that, that says kind of like, when I ask for new data, make sure that 
anything that I wrote in the previous request, which was, a, in this case, a write, is already considered in, in the response. Does that make sense? Yep. And we do this mainly from a user perspective. We don't want people to just have to you know, click a button and wait for, for their permissions to update. We want the UI to be fast. And so all, if all this stuff processes offline, uh, it's just a much better uh, user experience. That, that makes and, sense. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, and I was just going to say, like, it's, it's better for the system, too, because um, we're not CPU constrained on the actual service. We let the, the workers handle that offline, right? And those are the things that we can spin up tons of replicas, and we don't really care about how much CPU we use, right? Um, so the service still say, stays reliable and, and quick. Makes sense. So one of the things I'm hearing is, again, latency and performance and responsiveness. Uh, before we dive into, like, the technical details of that, what what is important about those characteristics for for Carta? Like, how, how do you quantify the business impact of that speed? Um, Andy, do you want to handle this one, or do you want me to take it? Andy, hello. Yep, we can hear you. Okay, sorry, I, I did not hear anything. I got. Oh, looks like he's having connection issues. Yeah. I, I can handle this one. Um, so initially, I don't think the performance was actually a huge deal for us. Um, we wanted to be faster than the old system, um, but like it wasn't it wasn't top of mind when we were building the new system. Like primarily, we wanted flexibility and a system that we could build new products on. It's great, however, that we you know found a system that also has performance because we've seen pretty uh, significant you know performance improvements in our product just by using this. And uh, I'll get into it a little bit when we talk about Flatten, but um, the fact that we can grab a list of all the entities that a user can access in under 20 milliseconds is just an amazing user experience. And it, it makes the product so much faster. Um, so we're really excited about that. That's, that's great. Yeah, that, and that, that is one of the things that kind of like goes back to the thing you kind of mentioned earlier, which is uh, other alternatives like OPA today, they, they, they don't handle the data. And, and a big part of latency is data indirectly, right? Like there, there's this need to make sure that the data source is reliable and it's fast and it's indexed and implemented appropriately. And when you have, again, very large monoliths or you're evolving uh, a microservices architecture, you typically do that where you optimize for the, the right path or like again, the, the CQRS pattern with the right path and the read path. This is the same thing, right? This is a very heavy read path for authorization. And, and indirectly, what you're doing is kind of like having your authorization microservice that's optimized for that. Yeah, exactly. And it, the other thing that we benefit from, too, is that it's a single source of truth. So there's no services that might have like similar permissions that you don't know which one to query. Like it's all in one system and you can even connect permissions across domains, too, if you want. Um, so it, it's just been really amazing to have everything as, as a single source of truth, which is consistent. So let, let's kind of like flip flip our view now. Like we, we, we are kind of like putting our builder hat on and, and, hey, how does this work? But we started the conversation with Aaron and they were on the platform 
team at Carta on the IAM team. And what they do is they build tools for other developers at Carta to use their services to make their lives easier. How did you validate that what you were building was useful for teams? Um, so if you've ever read the book called The Lean Startup, uh, the guy talks about this build, measure, learn feedback loop that he uses to build a company. And so the build, measure, learn feedback loop is you build something, you measure how successful it was. And, and when you build it, you don't build anything um, that's complete. You just build a, a proof of concept. You measure how, how successful was it. You learn from um, those metrics, and then you build something else that optimizes one, uh, on what you had earlier. So at Carta, we build a lot of our products using that same philosophy, even if they're just internal products. Uh, so we use that philosophy to build Aussie. And like I mentioned earlier, we started by not even building a product. We just modeled permissions out and see, saw for ourselves you know, what worked and what didn't. So once we were confident that um, Zanzibar would work from our perspective, we built a super simple uh, MVP that didn't have any performance optimizations. It didn't have uh, the index. It only There's only like three endpoints that you could use. You could add permissions, you could remove them, and you could check them. We didn't have visualizers or flatten uh, algorithms or anything like that. And then we distributed it to um, some teams uh, just internally, uh, nothing external. And we had them spin up our service in a, a test environment where they could model some permissions and uh, test to see if they worked. And so from that, you know, we got a lot of positive feedback. People really liked the way you model permissions. Um, but there are a few things that they didn't like as well. Um, one is that it was slow because we had whenever somebody added a permission, you know, we'd had to um, or sorry, whenever somebody checked the permission, we would had to traverse the graph. Uh, it was difficult to add permissions as well because uh, there's only one endpoint to do it. So if you had like a hundred different permissions that you need to add for a you know a corporation that's created or something, you would have to you know call Aussie a hundred times to add all those permissions. So that wasn't great. Uh, and then there's no visibility into the system. So once you push the permissions, you couldn't visualize like what the graph looked like or what you had had added. Um, so, you know, obviously room for improvement. Uh, we took that information and then we built several different iterations where we addressed each one of their problems step by step. And, you know, sometimes people didn't uh, feel like our, our uh, solution actually solved their problem. So we backtracked and we built something else. And through that process, we built something that works really, really well for our company. And, you know, every new product has used Aussie and it's been extremely valuable for them, created a lot, lot of leverage. Uh, so yeah, I, I would highly recommend using that approach. That's, that's interesting. We, we kind of like did a very similar thing. We, we actually kind of like built an initial version of this uh, kind of like Zanzibar, and then we went show it to people and, and kind of like doing similar things. Um, so you mentioned a lot of these things, uh, like the the ability to uh, visualize things, that it was slow. Uh, you mentioned the notion of like, what if I need to do lots of permissions and, and also the notion of uh, flatten. Um, can, can we talk about each of this? Like, for, for example, let's talk with like, how did you solve the case for like adding lots of permissions? Yeah, so we have several different um, endpoints to do this. I, well, yeah, gRPC methods, I guess you could call them because we use gRPC, but um, we have uh, bulk ads, so you can add permission, like you could just 
uh, post a bunch of different um, relation tuples and uh, with the bulk add method, and then it would add everything. Um, but something that we've been using recently is the template, um, like adding permissions through templates. And templates are basically a way to add repeatable permission sets. So you define a template in Auth Z which corresponds to a use case, let's say. Um, so say our use case is, let's, let's create a new fund. Um, and so whenever you create a new fund, you're probably going to have to add um, several different permissions for the groups that are, you have by default for that fund, maybe um, for the entities that that fund uh, can access or the users that have access to that fund. And um, so the templates have, um, they're, they're using mustache syntax. So you can inject variables, you can do, you can have loops and conditionals. And um, consumers will inject data for that new fund into the template and call Ozzy. Um, so whenever, like, yeah, whenever something happens uh, on the change event, they would call Ozzy with a template, pass in the data for the newly created entity and then it would just auto-fill Aussie with all of the data. And um, this has been really helpful for our consumers because uh, there's kind of like one source of truth for how, how they update the template as well. It might change at some point, but um, it's, it's been very easy for uh, consumers to, to call Aussie with those. And Andy, I don't know if you had anything else you wanted to add to that as well. Can you, can you hear me this time? Yep, okay. Okay, perfect. Um, yeah, so uh, as Aaron said, those are the two main methods. But um, we've noticed like an uptick because we are keeping like analytics on this and templates for the most part are heavily used. Um, when new services spin up, it's really easy for them to define their templates. And like Aaron said, if it was like creating corporation, creating whatever it may be, all they have to do is hit this one endpoint and that sort of that subgraph is automatically generated for them. So it's a very consistent way for them to create their graphs um, in their workflow. And it's, I, I think, probably one of the most heavily used endpoints at this point. Aaron, correct me if I'm wrong on that, but um, re, re, except for check. But this is for adding, has been heavily used, is the uh, template endpoint. I don't, I think you're muted. Oh no, I, I just I agree with Andy. Yeah, I mean it's it's heavily used, and it like it makes testing really easy too because um, you know like because there's one template per per use case, it's just it's all defined there. And so if you need to ever look at you know how did we how do we add permissions for this thing, we can look at the template for that. Um, it also prevents people from fat fingering permissions. So if I was to create a script to add permissions for something. If I, you know, maybe if I um, added the wrong relation tuple, it could mess up my graph. Uh, but if it's done through a template, you can test that the template renders the correct permissions for that entity. Yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like it's a it's a very thin layer on top of the the meta API to to write or bulk write tuples, but it, it gives you kind of like a lot of a lot more safety and reusability without having to, to worry about that. And I, and I think that the key thing is not just that again, you went and, and like got that feedback and built it, but also you, you have metrics about like how often the, the feature is used. And, and that's, again, the typical thing what you do when thinking about products, but not something that you always see when, when you have platform teams 
selling or building a product internally, right? What about like the, the other concepts here? What about like, for example, the, the visualization that, that we mentioned earlier? What was the feedback that kind of like led you to say, hey, like we have no visibility into the system. We would like to know what's going on. Yeah, so we at first we introduced some endpoints to read permissions or or like query Aussie for relation tuples given some filters, um, but it just it's really hard to visualize how how the graph is structured based on a list of results that you you receive um, from Aussie when you call like the read endpoint or or the query endpoint. Um, it, read basically just goes down one level, so. Uh, if you say read a list of permissions that this user has, it just gives you all the direct connections from the user. So what it, what are all the permissions that were directly assigned to the user, or what are all the groups that they belong to? Um, and the query, like I said, the query is it just gets a, a list of relation tuples based on some filters. So um, consumers were having a hard time like visualizing what was in the graph based off of those things. And at the same time, when we we're actually testing um, Auth Z. Uh, we we were testing our index build system, and we thought it'd be easier to create a graph viz of um, the graph that was created for our tests, so we could figure out all the connections and then write unit tests to you know, or sorry, integration tests to verify that all the connections were properly pre-computed. And so we thought, why don't we just expose something like we built for for the testing uh, with graph viz to our consumers? And, and that's what we ended up doing. We built a tool in um, this web app we call Concord, which is used internally, where you can pass in a, an actor or a group, um, actor being like a user or a service or something like that. Group is like a group of, of users or services. And you can, you can visualize all of the connections that that particular entity has. And then you can click into downstream connections for those entities as well. And the tool is still actually pretty uh, primitive. It shows downstream and upstream uh, permissions. Um, but we plan to have other things like um, query by timestamp. So you can see a history of what permissions um, a particular user might have. And we also plan on adding filters. So we can pre-expand the graph, but only include the things that are, that are filtered by. Um, but I mean, that alone has, has really uh, sold some of our our consumers on the uh, the usefulness of Aussie because before it like even before we had Aussie we didn't we didn't have much visibility into the system unless we created scripts to to query the data um, so it's it's been really helpful especially for our support team um, to look at those permissions uh, just a just to add to that, um, one of the other nice things is it's almost an auditing ability where you may have a user and you're wondering why do they have permission to some entity, allowing you to visualize the path on how it's determining it has permissions is very helpful. So you may see like, hey, this person was like added to this group here and you know this group was added to a different group and that's why they have the permission now to view this entity. Um, if it is just a straight list of relation tuples, it's very hard to determine that. So that visual tool is just very helpful for auditing purposes. That, that makes sense. And we, we, we do see that like, and having that full graph is important, right? The, one of the things that you, you see, for example, when, when you look at Google, is that when you click share, you, you just see the, 
users that were kind of like added directly to a particular Google Drive document. And you also see kind of like the groups, right? Everyone in an organization has access, but like th there's nothing in the middle. So for example, if you're sharing uh, a document with a, a group of people, which you can't today, you wouldn't be able to see that with that list because you wouldn't know, okay, who, everyone who's a member of that group and so on. So kind of like that deeper tree visualization is, is very useful. Um, what are the, the advantages that you've seen from having a global store for permissions rather than like having different teams do their own thing? Uh, like, well, Andy, I don't, do you want to answer this one? I've been answering a lot of them, so I don't know if you want to answer. Sure. Um, so one of the biggest advantage, of course, is there's like a one source of truth. Um, as we decompose into multiple services, um, what we would hate to see is every single service having to spin up their own permission system. Um, because when it came to auditing or trying to figure out permissions, trying to aggregate all those permissions would be a nightmare. So having that one source of truth that is just a large graph is extraordinarily helpful. Um, and as Aaron hinted on like other questions or previous questions, um, the ability to connect these different services permissions together is extraordinarily powerful. So if you wanted to know like everything a user has permission to in the system, you can actually query Aussie and get that. So all the companies or corporations they have access to, all the funds, all the whatever it may be. Um, so having it in one place is very helpful. Um, and then it's, as Aaron hinted, it, it creates a lot of leverage for us because all our consumers of Authy, they don't have to create their own permission systems. They just use this platform specific one. It's the same across all teams. So if people do move teams or they join teams, there's just one system to learn. Um, and it's very consistent in how it's being used. So everyone sort of knows how to use permissions across the company. Good. Yeah, those sound uh, extremely useful. The, the, the notion of, like, again, educating anyone or if you just transfer teams, one of these very big cross-cutting concerns is already implemented for you so you don't have to worry about it. It's, again, it's a, one of the great things about kind of like building internal platforms. Now, again, lots of teams using this, lots of use cases. Uh, what are, like, the, the current numbers from the system in terms of, like, RPS that it handles, uh, the latency, uh, like maybe some of the percentiles, uh, because I know you mentioned some of these numbers. Uh, can you share more concrete numbers or give us a notion of like ballpark? Yeah, I can take this one. Um, so, yeah, we did a lot of load testing before we even pushed it out to production. And uh, so when we were doing our load testing, we made sure that there were basically no duplicates that were, you know, looked up when we we hit the endpoints and uh, we were still, even with that, no duplicates, no caching, we were able to get about six to eight milliseconds at the P95. And even at the P95 is about 12 to 15 milliseconds. And this is just because in the index, um, every, every uh, uh, permission or sorry, actor and object relation type that we look up, we hit a key. So it's like, it's basically a constant lookup and you're only constrained by the, the round trip time to your Postgres instance, which in our case is in the same data center. Uh, so it's pretty fast. Uh, when we started uh, pushing it out to production, um, we got even better latency because uh, sometimes consumers would call with the same permissions. And then we actually introduced uh, SDK, which had more caching on the client side. 
Um, so even better performance to the user. So we're pretty happy with that. Um, the only thing that I would say has kind of slipped a little bit is uh, we've been encouraging it. So, so the original metrics were based on not passing a token or a Zuki as Zanzibar calls it. And so it would just use the most recent version of the index, but we've been encouraging teams to pass a Zuki now, um, which is that change token. Again, that's it's um, returned with a permission when you when you add a permission or remove a permission. And so with the Zuki, it's been the P50 is more like 10 milliseconds and P95 is between 25 and 30, I'd say. Um, but we think that with some more caching, we could probably improve that. Those, those are oh, go ahead, uh, just... Sorry, I was just going to add on the load testing. Um, we built pretty deep graphs and pretty wide graphs as well for this. So, I mean, some of our tests, we had 100 level deep graphs that were, you know, 20 to 30 nodes wide. And we were still getting these response times. So, it, it wasn't just like the simple, like, two or three node graph. These were literally hundreds of nodes in this graph that we were testing and, against. And, and how does that fare, not just as the, the nesting changes, but like as the RPS goes up or down? Uh, so we... In, oh, go ahead, Andy. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, we currently have uh, 30 RPS in production, and we've, like, load tested to over 150 on just a couple nodes. I think we're more constrained by the DB at this point, because we can just spin up as many services as we want. Um, but I mean, we're still getting really good performance. We've, we've never had to scale up the DB even for over a hundred RPS and we're using like a T2, um, Postgres instance. So, I mean, pretty, pretty small instance, uh, for what we're doing. So yeah, I've been like extremely impressed by how this has per, uh, performed. Good. And, and, and let's talk a bit about like the, the rollout, right? Like this was, uh, as I can imagine, a large, important change across different teams. How did you roll all of this out while trying to minimize risk? Andy, do you want to take this? Uh, yeah, so I, I could take a stab at this. So, I mean, OSZ has been adopted by any new products that are coming out. Generally, we'll go on this. So that was a very easy thing for them to just sort of switch over and use OSZ from the start. Um, in terms of our current permissions, there is a, we're still moving on some of the older legacy permissions on there, but there is a process of moving people over slowly. Um, and there's different strategies on what we're taking just to verify like the new system and the old system are giving the same results. So in some cases, we may sort of dual write to both systems and check and just verify over some time to verify, you know, the same permission checks are being done correctly. Um, we're going as slowly as possible just to be methodical about this to make sure we don't like create any new bugs or any permissions that aren't supposed to be there. So it's just been a slow process of migrating over current permissions over into the new system. Um, but like I said, what we do to verify is basically we will dual write to both systems, the old system and the new system, and all our checks, we verify that the answer is the same. And we do this for an extended period before we say, okay, it's good, and we actually flip over to the new system and stop the dual writes. Yeah, that, that sounds... Uh very common, but I think everyone that I've talked to that also is kind of like pushing out the Sansior implementations going through the same kind of like dual write, shadow read, comparison, making sure that the results are the expected ones, progressively ramping up the load and also onboarding new teams first. So that's, that sounds uh, great, actually. 
uh, it's it's always good to hear kind of like these repetitive patterns. On the one hand, like it's a problem because of confirmation bias, but at the same time, it's like, hey, yeah, this this works, and not just at one or two places, but but at many places. Um, kind of like to to close things up, and, and again, it's it's been great, and and I learned a bunch of things from this. Uh, what are kind of like the, the things that that your key learnings from from this whole endeavor? And, and I would like to kind of like pick your brains on uh, each each of you, maybe one or two things. Andy, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, I, I think the biggest key learning here is experimenting. So again, Aaron talked about this, but building an MVP, I think really helped us iterate very quickly on this and help us build a product that's actually useful for Cara. Um, and it's not just reiterating or iterating very quickly on this. It's actually going to teams who are using this and getting their feedback, incorporating that into the next version. And I, I guess this is, could be applied at any engineering or any system, but it's a very important thing to take away from this. Just create an MVP, iterate on it, and get feedback as quickly as possible. Because the more feedback you get, the better the solution will be for the company at large. And just to add on to that, I think building things in a modular way where you can swap out components with better implementations later on has been super helpful. Like just having the index as a separate system that we can replace with whatever we want, you know, maybe a, a different database or maybe a different set of uh, workers would build it with maybe with lambdas or something. I don't know. But, you know, anyway, having a separate modular system like broken apart in um, different pieces has been super useful and also just like like building the system without thinking about uh, performance at first and then optimizing later like there's that quote that's like uh, performance is, or uh, per, per, sorry optimization is the root of all evil or something like that it's I, I feel like that's a, premature optimization is the root of all yeah yeah exactly. uh, apologies for not remembering that correctly yeah. but I, but yeah I mean I think if we would have just tried to optimize before even delivering anything to our customers, like our internal customers, I guess. I think we would have, we wouldn't have rolled out a solution as quickly as we did and provided value for products at a time, like right before they, they needed to be built, uh, which was super critical for us. That's great. Yeah, the, that's kind of like one of the, the challenges that, that kind of like you always face, which is like how much is enough, right? Where you can go validate something and, and you can only kind of like get feedback so many times from people, at least the same people, especially at the company. So like what's the minimum set that you can build so that they will be interested, but at the same time not make it too small so that they, they don't see the value in it. And, and that's kind of like a very fine line to walk, but kind of the, the biggest challenge in building a new product globally. Good. So again, like this, this has been great, guys. And, and again, I, I really love uh, having you on. Uh, we're uh, going to be uh, publishing the recording to uh, YouTube channel uh, probably either tomorrow or on Friday for anyone that kind of like joined the, the space uh, a bit after we we started it. Uh, but again, we really appreciate it and. Uh, kind of like a sneak peek of what we're doing uh, next week. So next week, we will actually have the folks uh, from Styda, also uh, OPA co-creators uh, as guests. And we'll be talking about uh, all things OPA, Rigo, and Styra. So if you're interested in that topic, uh, 
again, anyone that's listening in, uh, just you should tune in. This should be next week. I think it was at uh, 3 p.m. PDT, but I need to confirm the time. Thanks a lot.